Welcome to Redesigning. I'm your host, Grace Kim, and today we're joined by the very special Nathan Ladd. Thank you, Nathan, for coming onto the show. For those of us who haven't had the pleasure of making your acquaintance, can you give us a quick introduction about yourself? Yeah, I'm a primarily uh, a software uh, software maker, designer, implementer, and manager. Uh, I don't do a lot of user interaction design, but uh, at least do some and have some exposure. So I got started about 2004. So I'm kind of an old hat now as a programmer. Uh, and recently I started a consulting uh, agency with my partner in crime and mentor, uh, Scott Delware. Well, I just wanted to pick up on our conversation that we were having the other day. I think we talked about some really interesting topics, one of them being tools and the fixation on them. Um, in the design industry, that's definitely something that's prevalent, the topic uh, centers around what's the newest tool, what are the old tools, which tool is the best, and um, what are the newest tools that are in development. And I think that you echoed the same sentiment is also in software. Why do you think this is such a thing in the tech industry? Well, I think I think it's, uh, it reflects a limitation or a blind spot we have uh, that we haven't, that we've uh, by and large neglected. And I think during that conversation, we were both kind of noticing in, in our different disciplines that this has happened. Uh, we've kind of neglected the most important tool, which is our brains, which is our ability to look at an interface or an interaction design and assess whether it could be improved. Are there any obstructions that are in the user's way? And I see this in code all the time, uh, where I'm reading somebody else's code that has um, that introduces concepts that are not immediately apparent, yet confuses variable names, it confuses a lot of the concepts, and puts, like I said, obstructions in my way of understanding, which is what I'm trying to do when I'm, I'm trying to read code. So ultimately, after working with programmers for quite a long time, and 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 also trying to improve my own practice and discipline. What I've come to realize is the most valuable tool we have is our ability to spot problems with uh, whatever we're working on, specifically in terms of spotting the problems that are going to cause setbacks down the road or are going to attack somebody's attention unnecessarily. Yeah, I definitely can say the same about design too. I think part of the the reason why we so readily jump into tools and that tools mindset is because it's so available to us. It's so easy to just reach for something. It's it's very tempting to let your mind wander around figuring out what the best tool is for the job when as you said, the thing that we should really be focusing on first is the most valuable tool that we have in our arsenal, which is our brain. And I think that takes us into our next topic in a very elegant way, which is processes. How do we use our brain to find the correct process to make sure that we're solving the correct problem? Because if we're working with faulty processes, we can only end up with faulty products. And if we do end up at a good product that is successful, a lot of it can be largely attributed to perhaps even luck. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think identifying the processes that are in play that produce our outcomes is particularly difficult, I think, in knowledge work. Uh, I think this is the case for both programmers and user interaction designers. 
that when we're when we're designing a user experience, for example, the processes are largely unknown to us unless we make it a point to deliberately decide to sort of look within or examine how we're operating. So uh, to give a concrete example, something I've seen on a few sites recently in the last few months looks to be a new fad. Normally, everybody, when you sign into a website and you have an account, there's a menu in the top right corner of the screen that lets you open up and view your account and your profile, all that stuff. Suddenly, we started to see the bottom left corner used as kind of a new trend, trendy thing, as a, as a place to, to put the user account stuff. So if we deconstruct that, like what process led to that decision? You really, when you're, when you're experiencing something, you don't, you don't have the ability or the vantage point to get into the mind of the designer. And likewise, if we've got a designer who's a peer on our team, unless, unless we're working closely with them or we're following their, their work logs or we're at least gaining some sort of relationship where we're, we're having dialogue about what we're doing and why, you're not going to necessarily know either. And a, a very common reason why people uh, make the decisions they, they make in design fields, and I've seen this in software too, is now that we have this sort of almost fashion cycle, things come into fashion and they go out of style as new, as new fashionable trends emerge. Keeping up with the Joneses becomes a major influence, and nobody wants to stop and admit. Well, my process through which I, but I, I made a decision, w largely consisted of wanting to make sure that I keep up with the latest fashion trends in my field. But that absolutely can and is frequently a motivator. Especially, uh, there's a there's a connection here between the last topic and this one in the sense that we we only really have the right processes or even robust processes at all when we start to examine them. Before we examine, begin to examine what our processes and our thinking are, we're typically just going with our gut. And that's where the gut decisions are where we're the most impressionable. So I would say if number one, a prerequisite to being able to have the right process means establishing a norm, making a habit out of process-oriented thinking and self-reflecting and making sure that I, I, I can be aware of the process at all. Otherwise, uh, I think what I've seen many, many times is when you uh, engage in dialogue with somebody about something they've designed, why is it this way? I'm not sure, have we considered A, B, and C, uh, what the user might be doing, what's in their mindset? A lot of times people will give you after the fact reasoning and you, you will not be able to recover the process. So that's the first part of the answer. Second part of the answer is, you need to understand that your process is not necessarily going to be a concrete fixed list of steps, especially not at the beginning. And you won't be, you don't need to try to craft the perfect process today. Instead, uh, I really recommend first getting in the habit of reflecting on how things went. So if you engage, if you design a new feature, for example, Start out by laying out what your what your thinking is. A journal is a great way to get started. Lay out what your thinking is and what all's involved. Who's your user? What's what's going on? What do you know uh, about what the user is trying to do or likely trying to do? And then do your best. And then at the end, the important part is at the end you look back and and reflect on what could I have missed. 
along the way, if you're tracking setbacks, for example, uh, or if you're tracking decisions, when you're when you're done, you can go back and look at and and see how those decisions panned out, or what what could I have investigated more in order to have eliminated the setback that I experienced along the way. So I think I think ultimately the more important thing to be oriented around before we start to try to identify the right process is to just have the overall meta process engaged of hey we're we're looking at our work and we're looking at our real world outcomes and we're being uh, disciplined about trying to discover how to meet ourselves where we're at and lead ourselves to the next increment of improvement continuously. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've made a lot of great points and I especially resonate with from what I've seen and the people I've talked to in the industry, a lot of that decision making that's based on gut, that's based on intuition. Um, I think also what you mentioned about the journaling and uh, I know you're a big fan of work logs and what you said about just sitting down deeply understanding the situation. I think those are all critical towards making a successful product that you truly understand the problem it's solving for. But it also made me think while you were talking about it, how everything you were saying was kind of at odds with the, with the tech culture. I think even the layman is familiar with, right? Like when we think of tech, we think of this move fast, break things, apologize later, that kind of culture. But but the results that we're seeing from that kind of mindset and that that hustling, that moving fast without worrying about the consequences, we'll fix it up later, is that we fundamentally create the wrong thing or we create something and there's a ton of frictions or inefficiencies and rework that has to be done to remedy for that. Yeah, for sure. Number one, I think we tend to, Typical software organizations tend to lack vision and their execution itself also leads a lot to to be desired. And as a result, those two sort of pathologies multiply one another's problematicness, for lack of a better term, creating a ship that's going nowhere faster uh, somehow. Uh, And I think the the vision part is really important because you're not going to be able to improve any process or product or anything without understanding what direction you'd have to be going in to be making a forward step. In other words, forward motion is only progress when your trajectory is good. And I think in the user, when we were having a conversation the other day that led to this, we were talking about what are you after when you're trying to perfect a design, a user experience? Uh, for example, what we're trying to perf- what we're trying to um, accomplish is we're we're trying to design in such a way so as to eliminate any unnecessary taxation on the user's attention span. So understanding that that's a critical sort of true north heading lets us understand how to evaluate whether we're we're headed in the right direction or not. If we don't have the vision, but we have very disciplined execution, we're not gonna be able to reflect on how we did and improve our processes. And similarly, if all we have is a good vision, but our execution is lackluster, we're we're gonna spin our wheels just as uh, uh, badly. And I think a good example to bring about here is probably Craigslist. Most user, uh, user experience designers pretty much 
almost I would expect to universally pan Craigslist's inter interface, but it has a massive captive audience and it has a lot of inertia. And it really, uh, they, they've invested a lot of hard work into, into creating a system where you can go online and sell stuff reasonably safely without having to have an account, without having you know to really engage in too much hassle. So when you think about, I mean, there's a lot that Craigslist could do to improve, but I think a lot of people, a lot of a lot of companies have tried to compete with Craigslist over the years. Uh, and if you're going to if you're going to try to do battle with a giant and you're going to try to counter or displace their inertia, you're competing against a very difficult challenge. And uh, ultimately, your vision has to really, your vision and your execution both have to really stand up. Uh, and be consistent, consistently applied over the long haul to even have a chance. And yet, uh, this is kind of where I'm building here. And yet, when I look around in the industry, and I think when you look around in the industry and see other people engaged in the work, what we what we find is it's not all that difficult. In other words, the vast majority of people engaged in software work, software design work, user experience design work, are not really having a very difficult time succeeding individually. So if you take vision away, if, if an organization doesn't have a shared vision, ultimately what you have is everybody's out for their own best interests. And designers are racking up portfolios of beautiful looking brochures that might actually be very difficult to use. They might be an some, uh, akin to a very beautiful alternative to Craigslist that nevertheless, when you go to use it, isn't as easy, for instance. So we would have to really unpack ultimately the chaos that ensues when you have all these different competing interests of everybody's individual preferences uh, and biases, really. So I, I guess a, a real, that was a kind of a long-winded way to address what you were bringing up. But unfortunately, uh, I've got a lot of opinions on this one. So <laughs> we love to hear it. Keep there. them coming. <laughs> yeah. No, you said a lot of great things. And, you know, while you're talking, my mind was just like going off about this, about what you said. And then another thing came to mind about what you said. But yeah, Craigslist and making things beautiful. I don't know how many redesign proposals I've seen of Craigslist. And I don't think designers seem to realize that there's a reason why Craigslist is so successful. There's a reason why it's been able to withstand the weathering that's come year after year. And it's because it does its job well. It solves its problem in a very elegant and simple way. And then the designers will come up with their redesigns and it just convolutes the whole thing, albeit beautiful. And on that note, um, you mentioned designers having portfolios of beautiful, stunning work that at the end of the day causes frustration for users. And I think a lot of designers lean into what's known as the aesthetic usability effect and say, well, it's a known fact that people, when they perceive something to be beautiful, they also think it's more usable. So they use that as an excuse to lean into their to their creativity and artistry to provide that kind of aesthetic experience. But ultimately, at the end of the day, sacrificing usability, the so-called usability that they are supposedly delivering with their aesthetic experiences. That's a fascinating example of exactly the kind of uh, rational sounding assertions that that really don't hold up to scrutiny very long when you really examine them. What we can conclude, uh, let's just keep on Craigslist for a minute. I, I think it's fair to conclude 
that people would perceive Craigslist as more usable if it were more aesthetically pleasant to look at. I'm sort of, I'm not, I'm not going to challenge that. I'm going to accept it as a presumption just to, just to get through this point. If we accept that at face value, it still leaves out to, conc- to conclude that a designer's pr- priority in general should be aesthetics is preposterous. It's a, it's a preposterous non sequitur because there are so many factors that go into whether or not a, user, a user's desires are being uh, fulfilled by uh, something they're using or not. On the list of factors that would impact, uh, that would improve somebody's user experience in any given software that they're, that's being designed, aesthetics may or may not rank in the top 15 factors. So being, and I'm, I'm, I want to use that term factor, I think people tend to, uh, once, you, once, once we start to look at systems that are pretty complicated, and you can't necessarily tease out uh, individual things. You can only look at the whole and, and look at the, the outcomes as a whole and what's going into it as a whole. You look at a system like Craigslist and you're like, wow, a lot of people are selling stuff online on Craigslist. It's a massive system. There are, there are too many factors for our small brains to take into account. Uh, and actually, I, I think I'll, I'll use a political analogy to try to drive this home because I think I probably won't land if I keep it too theoretical. When uh, the Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, it wasn't long before political pundits and their teams were looking at past decisions by prior presidential administrations or current presidential administrations and trying to spot the, what did a presidential administration do that might have had some influence whatsoever on the SVB collapse? And the reason that they're looking for that information is so that they can conclude that, oh, it's my political uh, adversary's fault that this happened. And ultimately what we're, what, what this is characterized at, uh, as in, in a lot of pop psychology is motivated thinking. It's when you have a conclusion you want to reach. And so you're using facts and evidence and lines of thinking that support it at the complete exclusion of anything that might refute it. So ultimately when you decide Aesthetics make software seem more usable, and therefore, aesthetics are the number one priority in my decision making. You're making a logical leap that is never gonna—it's never gonna survive any scrutiny. But people don't make that logical leap in their minds. I, I don't believe. I think what happens is they just repeat the antecedent. They just re- remind themselves aesthetics are important. Studies show it has to look good for people to think it's usable, and they get into a habit where they're constantly fixated on aesthetics because that's the aspect of the work that's most engaging, compelling, and satisfying to them. Right. Yeah, I think there's definitely a place for aesthetics. I don't think what we're trying to say here is that aesthetics should have no place in your work. Aesthetics can definitely come in the beginning stages of your work, depending on the problem you're trying to solve, right? If you're set out on making a beautiful chair, well, it should be a beautiful chair, right? But you know, I think to wrap up, aesthetics definitely absolutely have their place, but it should really come from a strategic place and understanding the function that aesthetics brings to your product instead of your product writing on aesthetics. Yeah, and I think there's an interesting symmetry here between the kind of meta-analysis of how we approach our work and the work of design itself. We're, uh, what I'm seeing is the same 
the same concept that's applicable in both places. And the, the underlying concept is how deeply do you want to grasp the conditions at hand in order to draw a conclusion or figure out what to do next? In the case of current events, if you want to try to understand what caused the Silicon Valley Bank to collapse, uh, it's up to you to decide how much research you would want to do before you arrive at a conclusion. Similarly, it's up to you to decide how much you want to consider and how much you want to inform yourself before you draw a conclusion. We, when we're engaged in motivated thinking, we're making a beeline to the conclusion we already want to reach. But when you take that out of the, out of the equation, suddenly we, we see all these little factors like aesthetics. They're just individual factors. And if you can imagine an equalizer with you know different notches for bass, mid-tones, and, 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 and all that parametric uh, equalizer, if you can imagine each one of these different traits, like aesthetics uh, being just one of them, as different uh, sliders, you're gonna, you, you can look at any number of factors in order to draw a conclusion about what to do next or how to, how to approach it. And so the, the, the kind of interesting aspect here is we have this meta discussion going on around how do we approach our job and improve our process. Uh, well, the way we do that is we avail ourselves of all the information and factors that we can uh, study the current conditions and study uh, what happens when we engage our process, study it as deeply as possible so that we can make the best, most informed decision about how to improve it. Similarly, when we're doing design work itself, when we're implementing a page or a feature, or in my case, it could be a, a source code. It's up to us to decide how deeply we under, try to understand what's the user doing, for instance, what's the user's objective. When we're fixated on something like aesthetics, there's an impairment towards our ability to keep going and keep grasping conditions more deeply and more thoroughly before we take the next step. So this ultimately, uh, what I'm hoping to, to try to communicate here is that I think that this that what we're after when we're trying to improve design and the processes uh, by which we produce those designs, what we're after is just convincing ourselves that it's okay to study a problem space more and more thoroughly so that we can, from a vantage point of grasping it more deeply, our next decisions get better and better. Yeah, I think that's an excellent summary of basically everything that we talked about. Thank you so much, Nathan, for coming onto the podcast. You know, I, I really enjoyed our discussions, just our previous discussions, as well as our current discussion. I'd love to have you on as a, a guest again for a part two, if you'd be interested. I absolutely would be. It was enjoyable. <laughs> I'm glad. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And this is Redesigning. Redesigning.